0: Seven oh two on a Wednesday. Happy Wednesday, everybody. Halford Bruff, Sportsnet six fifty. Halford and Bruff in the morning is brought to you by the Delari family of Acura dealers. Experience the Delari difference today by visiting your nearest Delari Acura dealer today. Uh, Chad Mum is on hold. He's going to join us in just a second here. Before we get to him, I need to tell you that hour two of this program, which is just kicked off. Is brought to you by North Star Metal Recycling. Vancouver's premier metal recycler pays the highest prices on
1: scrap metal. North Star Metal Recycling, they recycle, you get paid. We're coming to you live from the Kintec studio, Kintec Footwear and Orthotics, Canada's favorite orthotics provider, supported by over 1,500 five-star Google reviews. Find your perfect fit at Kintech.net.
0: Very excited to have our next guest on the program. He is the executive producer of Full Swing, available on Netflix now. Uh, joining us on the program, Chad Mum, here on the Halford & Bruff Show on Sportsnet 650. Good morning, Chad. How are
2: you? Good morning, guys. It's a pretty exciting day. I gotta say, I didn't sleep too much last night. Just thinking about all the work that went into this show. Now it's live on Netflix all over the world, and I hope everybody gets a chance to check it out.
0: I was going to say first, congrats. It's a pretty cool day when the show officially drops and debuts, and people get to start consuming it. Uh, I wanted to start actually in a chronological sense, go right back to the beginning, the origin story of Full Swing. Uh, how long was this show in the works before it eventually got the go ahead and you guys got the green light to make it?
2: Yeah, it's a good question. Um, you know, I've, I've been working on this project for more than half a decade uh trying to convince the pga tour to to let us make something that was truly unfiltered you know and if it was going to be any good it had to not be a commercial they had to be able to you know be warts and all that was what we kept saying and i think at the time the tour maybe thought we meant like letting the players cuss on camera (laughs) with what we ended up getting this year i think you know it's a totally different version of that but uh 2019 was when the show really started to move forward jay monahan had just become commissioner of the tour and uh, I met up with some of their execs who do their meteorite deals in Las Vegas for the CES technology convention. And we played golf like we always do. Um, and we happen to play at the course that I've been dying to play my whole life, Shadow Creek, which is a very tough. Oh, very so nice. We go out there, very nice, very excited. And, you know, we get on the first tee and I, I pitch him again and say, I think, hey, I think now is the time, you know, like, let's make this all access doc series and let's do it once and all. In and, I, and they looked over and said, yeah, I think now at the time, by the end of that 18-hole round, which I think is, by the way, a very fitting way to start, you know, development of a, of a series like this. By the end of the 18-hole round, we had sort of figured out what the deal could look like. You know, fast forward three months, I'm at the Players' Championship. We just closed the deal with the tour to, to have the exclusive rights to make a back series like this. And then a month later, I'm at the Masters in 2019, standing outside the ropes, with a index cards full of uh, you know players agents names on them and faces because you can't have your phone in the masters and I'm flagging down like Jordan Speed's agent Justin Thomas's agent introducing myself and telling them about this project so you know that's when that was the beginning and then you know throughout 19 and 20 um, we, we added the majors and Netflix got involved and uh, and you know the result is you know 700 hours of filming 7,000 hours of archive later. You've got Full Swing, which is eight episodes on Netflix Live now.
1: How open were the players to actually doing this? Because you can you can close the deal with the, with the tour, but then you have to go through the agents and you have to talk to these players, and you have to, I'm sure, convince them that it's in the player's best interest to participate with you, and that they are not going to regret working with you and 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 kind of like bearing their souls to the cameras. Totally.
2: Well, I, look, I, you know, we got we, – we, we, the first players that signed up were uh, Ricky Fowler, Justin Thomas, um, Tony Finau, and Cameron Champ. And those guys get a ton of credit because they understood what this thing was before even Drive to Survive had launched. So they, they were signed up before anybody even knew Drive to Survive existed, so they understood what this was. They were some of the first players to raise their hand and say, hey, this is something that's going to be good for the game. It's ultimately going to be good for us as players. And so we're, like, all in. And then, in you know, while we were all shut down during the pandemic, uh, that's when we added the majors, and that's when the scope of the show expanded a bit to look a little bit more like Drive to Survive, which had launched in that year. And so from there, you know, we were helped by that series, you know, the Formula One show, because a lot of the players who are in the show had seen that, become fans of Formula One, and watched, you know, the drivers, not necessarily the, you know, top drivers in the sport, but just, you know, the regular drivers, explode in popularity and so they they saw you know that what that could do for them so i think for you know what we kept saying to the players was the more you lean into this the more you're going to get out of it you know and we can't force you to do anything you know if you tell us to put the cameras down and walk away we're we gotta leave like we're not paying you anything so but the trade-off is the more you lean into it the more you're going to get out of it and that really that's really what ended up happening you know, some players totally got it from the beginning. Like I said, Finau, all in from the very beginning. Matt Fitzpatrick, another one that really got it. Surprisingly, Brooks Kepka completely understood it and got it from the very beginning. You'll see it in his episode. You know, guys like some of the other players, particularly some of the American players, took a little bit longer to get their trust and sort of, you know, build up with them. But you know, by the middle of the year, we were we were everywhere, and those guys. You know, it just it took it took a bit of time, but you know, I think we won them over and. And i I kept saying to them, it's like we're not we're not the media turning around. this is not going to be tweeted tomorrow, so right. whatever happens, whatever our cameras catch, we're going to have a year's worth of context to tell that story. so even if it's the lowest moment of, of the year for you that means that makes the high even more exciting and and they you know to their credit they they bought in and some cases they they bought in before their agents did and and then eventually you know we had this amazing uh this amazing year together so
0: we're speaking to Chad Mum here on the Halford & Breath Show on Sportsnet 650. Chad is the executive producer of Full Swing, the golf docu-series, which is available on Netflix now. So this series, Chad, the timing was, let's put it, impeccable because, you know, not often are you doing a docu-series when like the most fundamentally altering moment in the sports history over the last hundred years happens (laughs) where like a rival upstart league comes out of nowhere and is openly challenging the, the previously existing one, like the live golf thing. The timing was amazing. And Jason and I have talked about it at length over the last year, just how you've got this really sort of maybe disruptive transformative moment in golf. How did you deal with, with Liv coming onto the scene, all of a sudden you've got guys that you were talking with, now you're not talking with anymore. The whole upheaval in general, how was that in terms of your storyline narrative arc?
2: Well, I I think when we first heard about it, we were terrified that it was going to kind of vaporize the access that we had because it felt like, okay, now there's losses, now there's money, you know, millions and millions of dollars flowing flowing around. And we were worried that everybody was going to kind of, go back into hiding and get, you know, get quiet and not want to talk. So that month, uh, actually it was about a year ago, when this first started first on the scene was sort of maximum stress and pressure because we had already been filming with a couple guys that ended up going to live. And we wanted to just keep going with them. And we wanted to keep going with the guys who were going to stay. And we wanted to be there to capture this kind of unbelievable moment. And by the way, it was like one of those things, looking back on the year, if we would have written a script for how this year would have gone and included everything that happened, Netflix would have thrown it back and said like, that's too unbelievable. You know, sometimes real life is truly stranger than fiction. So, but what ended up happening, you know, we just, we just kept being there. We just kept going. We just kept the cameras rolling and we never stopped filming with the guys who left for live. And we just kept saying, look, this is a pivotal year. This is a transformative year. We're not going to editorialize anybody's decision. We're just going to let you walk us through why you, why you left or why you stayed, and we're going we're gonna to, like, hear it from the players themselves. We kept saying to them and their agents, if it's important to you, it's important to us. So obviously it's important to you to make the decision, like I said, stay or go. And we're going to, like, you know, be there for you to try to explain it in, in, in either direction. And I think the show does a really good job of, of having a ton of access, not just on the PGA Tour, but to the players that left and went to live. We continued filming with them, you know, post-leaving. We went to one of the live events in London. We followed those guys at all the majors. Like, it's we don't shy away from it at all. And I think the show does a really balanced job of presenting this year, which I would say is certainly unprecedented in pro golf, but maybe even in professional sports. You know, the, the most fascinating thing for us was a lot of, you know, there's been plenty of pro sports disruptions, you know, over the years. But, like, never in the middle of a season, you know, this was like Mm -hmm. happening while guys were still showing up, you know, sitting in lockers next to each other, playing in rounds together, competing against each other. And all of a sudden you have this atmosphere on the PGA tour, which, you know, historically and for the first part of the year was very kind of like, we kept saying it was like high school, you know, it's everybody's, you may not be best friends with everybody, but you've all made your dreams come true. You're out there on the PGA tour. There's kind of this collegial atmosphere. It's, It's like a traveling circus. Everybody's kind of on the road together. And all of a sudden that camaraderie was just fractured like overnight. And everybody's looking around trying to figure out, you know, where who, stand, who where do you stand? Where do I stand? And a lot of the players were processing it in real time as well, I mean, including some of the guys who left. I don't know if they made that decision. You know, not like they made that decision, you know, three months earlier. I think a lot of it was real game time decisions for everybody. And as you know, golfers, it was a little bit sometimes I think even informed by how they played, you know, the month, what was their form like at the time? So yeah. it was just fascinating to watch these players who are not known for being super outspoken all of a sudden have to answer questions about why they're playing the game for legacy, for money, answer these questions about morality, about the source of money. I mean, it's, it was, <laughs> it was truly stranger to fiction. And, and, you know, as we, after the initial kind of shock of it, we just started looking at each other and saying, Oh my God, you know, this is, this is unbelievable that the universe has handed us this.
1: Did did you get some differing answers when you asked that question about what are you playing for? Is it legacy or money? Because the money was undeniable for live golf, but then you also had guys like, well, whether it was Rory or Tiger that seemed to suggest like, I don't, I have got lots of money. Like I have already got, got it. Like I'm, I'm playing for my spot in the history of the game and I'm trying to, I'm trying to prolong the history of the game and better the game of golf.
2: Yeah, well, I think it's a, it's, a, it's a great question. And actually, our third episode is called Money or Legacy. So you can, uh, you can check that out uh, on Netflix today. But, uh, but yeah, I mean, look, everybody had their own reasons. And so if you think about the guys that left that we filmed with, they all, you, and you really see it in the show, they all have very sort of complicated, nuanced storylines for, for why they left. And again, you know, some of them explicitly talk about why they left, but others we spent months with. And you can see it as a viewer, like why they left. Whether it's sort of they're on the tail end of their career, or they're battling with injuries, they're worried about being the same player they've always were, uh, they always been. And others, maybe yeah, just because they feel like they've accomplished enough in this game, and it's a job to them, so mm-hmm. they'd rather be fishing. Yeah, you know, I think there's there's a lot of nuance in each of those stories, and I think the show does a really good job of sort of taking you inside, not just the minds of the players, but of mm-hmm. their families around them and their friends and their peer groups and you can kind of see you know again you may not agree with their decision but i think hopefully you'll have a lot more context for it
1: rather be fishing is dustin johnson isn't it uh I
2: <laughs> i'm just kidding you know what
1: i want i want to have a conversation about another guy that we've actually discussed quite a bit on this show and that is brooks kepka because i've heard you have a great conversation with him he was the only guy I think I read you might have said this I think I read he was the only guy that didn't show up with um, with his agent um, so he, Brooks Kepka to me I mean I remember when he burst onto the scene we would talk about him and be like man this game looks so easy to him and he was absolutely dominant and we were having conversations: how many majors is this guy gonna win and then he made some comments like I don't even like I'm obviously paraphrasing here. He's like I don't even like golf. Like it did, like I want to be a baseball player. And we were kind of like, mm-hmm. "Oh, that's that's I don't know if that's attractive to s- say that sort of thing like you're so good at golf but like you find it boring at times." What was your conversation with Brooks Kepka like? Because this is the one this is the one that I'm really looking forward to.
2: Yeah, I'm um, I'm glad. It's one of my favorite episodes. And yeah, just to recap that story, you know, the first interviews we did for the show were at Tiger's event uh, in 2021, the Bahama in in the Bahamas, the hero world challenge. And there's this really nice recording studio where all the players stay. And it was a perfect first place to do the Netflix interviews because these guys are used to kind of getting shoveled into a media tent and having to answer questions. This was like a recording studio with Justin Timberlake and his album. So it was pretty cool. All the players showed up, you know, they came with their entourage, they had agents with them, some people with them, friends, whatever. Brooks kept a, drives over to golf cart by himself, walks in and says, all right, let's do this thing. Sits down in a chair and for an hour and a half just blew our minds because we had that same impression of him. You know, he's, here's this alpha male, an athlete, somebody who kind of thinks of himself more like, you know, a baseball player, a football player. It kind of looks like it, by the way. And he blew us away with how open and vulnerable he was, you know, and he was coming off of like kind of a, a period of down form and, you know, we had heard those comments, too. Doesn't like the practice. Not even sure if he likes golf. And here he is sitting in a chair telling us about waking up at 2.30 in the morning, laying next to his fiance, and, you know, making a, a, a golf grip, it, you know, laying in bed, like, with an invisible club, just thinking about, okay, if I, if I tweak my left hand a little to the left, maybe that'll keep, you know, I'm wiping the ball right now. I need to get a little stronger with my grip. He's like, it's just, I go to bed thinking about it. I wake up thinking about it. And all he wants to do is to, to get back to where he was. And he's obsessed and he loves golf. And it's like, you just see, he was the most, in many ways, I think one of the most satisfying characters in the show, because it's exactly what you want a show like this to be. It, it's complete reversal of who you think, you know, what you think you know about a player from watching them on TV or watching their media interviews. You know, you get this kind of access, you get to see who they really are. And Brooks was one of the players that surprised me the most. And, I I mean, I really can't wait for you to watch that episode. It's only episode two, so you can get in there pretty early.
1: Oh, perfect. Perfect.
0: We're speaking to Chad Mum, the executive producer of Full Swing on Netflix here on the Halford & Bruff Show on Sportsnet 650. Uh, Chad, so we've talked at length about the sport docuseries and its evolution over the last little bit. And it's interesting because... You know, you, it seems obvious, but you get to tell the stories that don't necessarily always get told. Like with Drive to Survive, it took me like three episodes of Drive to Survive to realize that they weren't talking about the top three teams every week. Mm-hmm. Like, I'm like, why aren't they talking about Williams and McLaren? I'm like, because the interesting stories were the ones that were further down the ladder and the ones that were really, I mean, pardon the pun here, but fighting to survive on a weekly basis. So when you got to do this with the entire tour, what did you guys learn about the pressure that some of the golfers face? Not necessarily at the top of the leaderboard every week, but the guys that maybe don't get all the notoriety and publicity?
2: Yeah, yeah, no, it's a great question. You know, I think what we, we were very fortunate that we had a ton of access to the top players in the game for this season, which is pretty unprecedented for season one. Um, and so that, you know, meant that we had, we knew we were going to get major winners. We knew we were going to have, you know, this kind of, what's it like to be a top 10 player, potentially number one in the world. Um, so, when we were looking at some of these other storylines, you know, the one that really jumps out is, is Joel Damon's story. And, you know, Joel is, is a beloved golfer to like, diehard golf fans. But, you know, I would imagine he's probably not a household name outside of folks who, you know, tune in week in and week out. And getting, getting with him and seeing his relationship with his wife and with his caddy Gino Benelli, <laughs> it, it just takes you into just how hard it is to play out there on the PGA tour and just how good they are. I mean, Joel Damon, you know, I think at the beginning, he was like 70th in the world or something like that. And it's like, can you imagine just being 70th in the world at anything? Like, you know, you guys are are doing this show. It's like, imagine being top 100 in the world at anything. It's hard to fathom.
1: It is for me. But (laughs) yet
2: he still struggles with self-belief, you know, and and his episode ends up basically becoming about, what is, how do you believe enough in yourself? When everyone around you believes in you, how do you get yourself up to believe in yourself? And, and that's what that story is. And it's, it's sort of, it's an underdog story. Also, Joel Damon, for being so funny, you know, has had so much tragedy in his life. Mm-hmm. And, a, and a story that, you know, I don't think most people know about him. And to see like the, the self-belief come through as he had a, kind of, I would say, a pivotal year and sort of overcame a lot of stuff to, you know, qualify for the U S open to find himself in the final pairing on Saturday. It was, it was incredible to see. And I think that if there is, if there's a, a player who, you know, I, I want to become a breakout star uh, you know, it, it, it hard to root for anybody other than Joel Damon in that sense, because he gave us so much access and was so, you know, just welcomed us into his house, basically <laughs> with unlimited access. Uh, that one, i was so excited for people to see, because it really just shows that golf, the margins between the top players, and the players who are you know, right on the bubble, it's so razor thin. I mean, so razor thin. And it can slip away at a moment's notice. Golf is such a fickle game, mm-hmm. you know, even for the best players in the world. Yeah. You know, it's a form comes and goes. And so imagine being right on that edge. And, and what does it take to win? What does it take to stay there? What does it take to compete? Um, and, and in Joel's case, you know, it takes his, you know, the people he surrounds him with who, who are just there to, to show him that they believe in him so he can believe in himself.
1: Did you ask him about the bucket hat? Why the bucket hat? <laughs> we, well, you know, it, we did. I don't know if that actually. i just there, kidding.
2: But it's Ch- just so much good story.
1: Chad, I'm really looking forward to this. Uh, I, but we've been talking about this uh, for a while now, and as soon as uh, we saw that this documentary was coming out, we said we said we got to have someone. Um, from the show to talk about this with us. So thank you very much for joining us today. Of all days, the day it is being dropped on Netflix. Everyone can go watch it now. It is full swing. Chad Mum is the executive producer. Thanks for joining us and, and enjoy all your success because I'm sure it's going to be successful.
2: Thank you so much for having me, guys. Hope you guys
0: enjoy it. Thanks, Chad. Appreciate it. Chad Mum, as Jason mentioned, executive producer of Full Swing, available on Netflix now. I'm really curious. To see this one, I know we were short on time, and he's probably got millions of things to do today because it is the debut of his new series. But um, this is the formula is there for so many of these types of docu series to be done. Mm-hmm. Uh, like, he, I mean, the one thing is incredible amounts of content, and incre- seven hundred hours yep. of film uh, that he has to go through and footage, and, and so there's that part of it, right? There's never like And then the second part of it is, you know, you don't need a script because the script is written for you. You don't have to go to Netflix. Like he was saying, if I went to Netflix with this script, about live jumping on the scene. Mm. It would have been too unbelievable. Get rid of it. I wonder if
1: the new NHLPA chief could spearhead something like this. Because, you know, we've we've heard about um, the players. Like one of the things they want to do is... Profit more, make more money off their names, image, likeness, that sort of thing. Mm. Um, Could the PA be a party to producing one of these things? Because typically the deal would be done with the NHL. That would be the the way, honestly,
0: that would be the best way for them to actually let the players show their personality. Yeah. Not dressing them up in white suits and making them do Happy Gilmore remakes in front of a camera when they know that it's all staged. Like, Mm -hmm. you need to have some authenticity to this, and you need to understand that if someone doesn't have the most outgoing personality, that's still their personality. Like, that HBO
1: 24-7 thing was cool for, like, a minute. You know why? And then the players were like, "Uh," and the coaches were like, "Uh, I feel like we're getting taken advantage of here. You know, Bruce Boudreaux probably wasn't, uh, super happy with the narrative that developed from that first HBO twenty four seven series when they made Dan Balsma look like a genius mm-hmm. and they made Boudreaux look like kind of a buffoon. But the other pro, the other reason it didn't work was that it took the
0: same formula from its other twenty four seven. It was the road up to something like the event was road big to yeah. The yeah. event was bigger. than... The road than to the Winter Classic. That's, that's what, what it was. was. Yeah, like yeah. It, it used to be for boxing, mm-hmm. right? And you always had an end date. So the entire narrative arc was about the finale, or the match, or the game. It wasn't about, uh, what's the guy's name? Joel Damon? Joel Damon. It wasn't about surviving on the PGA Tour. Or, like, because here's the thing. Like, if he finishes 76th at the Waste Management, Mm -hmm. um, it's not a a narrative arc, because the the finish is like, well, he was way, way, way back (laughs) winning, right? He wasn't even close. Yeah. So you have to have the, like you say, you have to have the time and effort invested in these individual stories. Like, what HBO 24 seven should have resulted in is following around Ilya Brzgalov way more and mm. figuring out why are you like so this. quirky? Yeah, why are you like? like this?
3: You know yeah. what it resulted in is teams taking it into their own hands. I don't know if you guys have seen the behind the bee. Well, yeah, yeah, and then you the, get this really Montreal S- Canadiens sanitized, one. washed
0: down. Version They're really
3: well done though, and I think there there's something there. You're you're right. It is through a, a team's a lot of ways, PR lens, right? but. It's great access, and it is. I yep. think that's along the lines of what you're talking about.
1: More of an in-the-moment sort of thing, well, rather you, than a build-up to But like I just it. wonder if the PA could be the ones doing this. The PA has
0: to be, because the, the NHL is its too conservative of an, of an outfit. It's too concerned about its image publicly. I think the the, the hook for... But could
1: the PA do it without the NHL's permission, right? Because the NHL could say, well, you're not getting access to our facilities. That's fair. Right? They'd have to work in conjunction, but I think the understanding would have to be... Well, they wouldn't necessarily. Right? Yeah. They'd just be like, okay, we won't film yeah. at the rink. But We'd then you'd pos- be like, that ah, seems boring. Then.
0: Yeah, we're just at Pasternak's house the whole time. Like, why? <laughs> uh, but no, but there's, there's an interesting thing here, too, because I think there would have to be an understanding that you have to allow the story to be played out warts and all. Like, there's going to be moments... When you're watching, like it was with um, Drive to Survive, where Mm -hmm. there's the the tour, F1 doesn't look good, the executives don't look good, the the opulence and money that goes in is kind of, but that's all part of the package. Right. The NHL would have to say, like, yeah, we have to address, like.
1: The NHL would have to loosen up a little bit.
0: Yeah, like, uh, get some starch out of that collar, Gary, (laughs) like, that's what you'd have to do. So, (laughs) anyway, uh, we're going to move ever so slightly stay within the sporting realm, but we're going to go back to hockey. It's the Canucks and the Rangers tonight, seven o'clock from Rogers arena. Uh, We are going to get a brief update on the Rangers. Vince Mercagliano is going to join the program. So even though the Canucks played the Rangers a week ago, last Wednesday, a very busy week and a lot of different things going on with the Rangers, including a new player, Vladimir Tarasenko. So we'll talk to Vince about that coming up. You are listening to the Halford and Bruff Show on Sportsnet 650. Hitting
3: the most important topics for Vancouver sports fans. The People's Show with Big Nazar. Subscribe and
2: download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.
0: here on the Halford and Bruff show on Sportsnet 650. Halford and Bruff in the morning is brought to you by the Delari Family of Acura Dealers. Experience the Delari difference today by visiting your nearest Delari Acura dealer today. Uh, It is the Canucks and the New York Rangers tonight, seven o'clock from Rogers Arena. If you want to win a pair of tickets to see tonight's game, text the what we learned into 650 650. That is the Dunbar Lumber text line. Add a ticket emoji into your text. You'll be entered into the grand prize draw for a pair of tickets to see the Canucks and Rangers tonight, 7 o'clock from Rogers Arena. Now, uh, it hasn't been long since the Canucks have seen these Rangers. It was a week ago that they played in New York, but a lot has changed since then. Joining us now to discuss, uh, New York Rangers reporter Vince Mercogliano here on the Halford & Bruff Show on Sportsnet 650. Good morning, Vince. How are you? Good, guys. Just waking up in beautiful Vancouver today. Welcome to the city, and good morning to you as well. Uh, Let's start with the fact that we did a preview of these Rangers last week, so we thought there wouldn't be much to say a week later, but they have a whole new player. Uh, Vladimir Tarasenko was the big deal, uh, well ahead of the trade deadline for the Rangers. I know it's been a small sample size, only a handful of games. Uh, I know he scored in his debut, but what have the early returns been from Tarasenko uh, with the blue shirts? Well, yeah,
3: that first game was was electric for him. He scored on his second shift, so so that had the Madison Square Garden rocking that night. It's been pretty quiet for him since then again, it's only two games, so you know you don't want to read too deep into it. He's adjusting to a new team. It was a whirlwind week for him. He talked about a lot of the different emotions that he was going through, having been in St Louis for eleven years and and then coming here as if you know first and only time had been he'd been traded so You know, he was going through a lot, family stuff, all that. So you got to cut him a little slack. But I think he's only had one other shot on goal since that initial goal that he scored on that second shift. So I think you're still waiting to see where it clicks. I think the Rangers are still trying to figure out exactly where he's going to fit best. Everybody thought the idea when they made the trade was he's super close friends with Artemi Panarin. Panarin is a pass-first guy. Tarasenko is a high goal scorer, so they figured that that would be a match. But actually what they went to in the win over Carolina on Saturday night was they separated those two. They had Tarasenko late in the game on the top line with Chris Kreider and Mika Zibanejad, and they had Panarin on the second line with Vincent Trocek and Jimmy Vesey, and Panarin exploded. He scored four goals in a little over 20 minutes in that game, so that was a pretty obvious reason for Gerard Gallant to keep those lines intact going into tonight's game and Vancouver. I think you're gonna see some experimentation from them in, in the next handful of weeks trying to figure out exactly where he does fit best. But right now he's gonna be on that line with Kreider and Zabanajad and I think he's trying to find his footing. And and I do think that he had come over, they played those back to back games on back to back nights. They were off on Sunday. They flew across you know, they flew across the continent to get to Vancouver. So it was a lot of stuff going on for him. But the last few days, he's been able to settle. They practiced on Monday and Tuesday, so he finally got some practice time in with the team. So maybe you'll see a guy who's a little bit more comfortable tonight.
1: Why do you think the Rangers chose Tarasenko and not Patrick Kane? Because according to some things that I read, Patrick Kane was one of the guys that was kind of upset when he saw that Tarasenko was traded to the Rangers because it meant that he wasn't going to be traded to the Rangers.
3: Yeah, listen, it definitely sounds like Kane maybe had his hopes up for coming to New York, and you can understand why. Those rumors were flying around for a long time. I was always a little skeptical on that for a variety of reasons, and then especially you look at the way that this season has gone for him. His production is down. I know for a fact that the Rangers had concerns about the hip injury that's kind of been out there and and become a prominent thing around the league. I think a lot of teams are concerned about that right now, and my understanding also is that it sounded like the initial talks with Chicago, the Rangers would have had to cough up a little bit more as far as assets to get Kane than what they ultimately gave up for Tarasenko. And don't forget, in the Tarasenko deal, they were also able to get Nico Mikola. And that was really the, the Rangers' second big need. They needed a right winger who can score. And the big three names on the market for them were Tarasenko, Kane, and Timo Meyer from the San Jose Sharks. But they also had a void on their bottom pair needing a left-handed defenseman. And so the fact that they were able to get Tarasenko for what it sounds to me like was definitely less than they would have had to pay for Meyer and also potentially less than they would have had to pay for Kane and also plug that hole where they they needed a left-handed defenseman, it kind of became a no-brainer for them. You know, Tarasenko has been pretty healthy for the last two seasons. I know his production is a little bit down this year as well, but he has that connection with Panarin. He's been one of the premier goal scorers in the NHL for a long time, and that's really what the Rangers needed above all else. They needed a guy who can finish. That's been an issue for them at five-on-five, on five, not only this year but also last year as well. So they wanted to add a guy who's a proven goal scorer, and I think being able to get Tarasenko, they really didn't have to dip into their prospect pool and, and surrender anything of value there. They did give up the first-round pick, but it's the later of their two first-round picks. So I think all things all things told, Being able to plug your two biggest holes and only have to give up what will amount to be a late first-round pick, that's a pretty good deal for the Rangers, and I think in in time that became the no-brainer option for
1: them. You know, we talk a lot about uh, the Toronto Maple Leafs and and the tough road that they would have in the playoffs if they can ever get out of the first round. Well, it starts in the first round for them. It could be, you know, Tampa Bay in the first round, Boston in the second round, and then then you get to the conference final, and it's going to be tough. Rangers fans must be kind of feeling the same way because they're looking at the standings right now, and they're going, well, we might get New Jersey in the first round. They're this really good young team. And then it might be Carolina in the second round. How much of that goes into the Rangers' thoughts? Like, you know, they, they, they have some veterans for sure. Like Chris Kreider isn't getting any younger. But this is a team that... Um, Shirley is thinking, like, we've got a long-term future here. We have to protect the future.
3: Yeah, as far as the matchup with the Devils, I think New York City would relish that. People would love to get involved in that rivalry, and I think the city would be buzzing. That would be really cool as far as the covering it would be for, from my perspective. But the Devils as a team are the type of team that has given the Rangers a little bit of trouble this season. The Devils have beaten them two out of three times so far and the teams that seem to match up best against the Rangers are the ones that play a fast-paced game. Teams with a lot of speed and skill, the Rangers have plenty of skill, but I do think that they aren't quite as fast maybe as, as a team like New Jersey, and, and we've seen that play out in the head-to-head matchup so far. So I think it will be a difficult matchup for the Rangers for sure, but the X factor is You know, you look at the New Jersey Devils goaltending situation, I know it's been solid this year, but it's certainly nowhere near the level that the Rangers feel like they have with Igor Shosturkin in net. So the Rangers having Igor for a seven-game series are always going to feel like they have the advantage in that category. And now their lineup with Tarasenko in it is looking deeper than it really has in, in several years. So I think that they would take their chances in that matchup, but it would certainly be one that, that, you know, the Hudson River rivalry and everybody in New York city and New Jersey would be really into and It would be a fun one to start. I don't think though, you know, you look at this Eastern conference playoff picture. I don't think anyone you play is going to look like an easy first round matchup. I mean, the top eight teams or so in in this conference are all going to, I think be pretty tough. So no matter which way you go, you're going to have a tough road, but you know, Carolina, the Rangers were able to get through them last year. So I think they'd have confidence in that series as well. They're aiming high, and they're feeling really good about the way
0: that they're playing right now. We're speaking to Rangers reporter Vince McCagliano here on the Halford & Bruff Show on Sportsnet 650. You mentioned you're in Vancouver, and thank you, Vince, for giving all Canucks fans something to chew on yesterday when you tweeted out with regards to Vitelli Kravtsov that, you know, we are in Vancouver, and maybe a name to keep an eye on in a prospect-in, prospect-out trade would be Nils Hoglander. Now you were just throwing it out, and you used the "keep an eye on it" emoji, but let's explore this a little bit further. Uh, tell us a little bit more. Tell our listeners a little bit more about a guy like Kravtsov, the situation he's in, why they might be moving on, and why there might be a fit here.
3: Yeah, it's a long story. I'll try to keep it somewhat brief for you, but essentially, the Rangers took Kratzoff at number nine overall in the 2018 draft. They've had a lot of ups and downs with him since. Then he came over the year after that and didn't make the team at a training camp. He was very disappointed in that, ends up going back to Russia. They've had this back and forth where he's come over and tried to make the team and hasn't a couple times. And rather than going down to the American Hockey League, which is what the Rangers wanted him to do, he refused that assignment and went back to Russia. So that rubbed people in the organization the wrong way. It's been a rocky road there were definitely some early mistakes. I think people would tell you from him, whether it's bad advice or immaturity, but I think the Rangers have also kind of had this doubt about how to use him. I don't think they've ever really given him a long leash to try to succeed at the NHL level when they put him in the lineup. It's always been for short spurts. He's never really had an extended run. And even this year they did have a 17 game stretch where they played him for, for all those games in a row but he would be on the second line for some games and then he would get demoted within the games. A lot of times he'd get benched in the third period. It just feels like he needs a change of scenery. And and I know that he has asked for that in the past. And the Rangers position has been, well, listen, if we don't get a trade return that we're happy with, we don't have to move the guy. And, And that's understandable on their part, but it feels like it's coming to a head. Now he's been a healthy scratch. A number of games recently, once again, and I think he definitely wants that fresh start as well. So from the Rangers perspective, you know, a lot of people are saying the rest of the league kind of knows his value is down and they're trying to buy low and the Rangers might have to end up settling for, let's say, a third round pick or something along those lines. But I think before they settle on a deal like that, they'd like to explore other options, ways that maybe you could you know, go to another team that has a guy who's had some struggles but also has some upside and say, Hey, maybe your guy could you just use a change of scenery. Our guy could use a change of scenery and we'll kind of make this upside play and see that maybe, you know, if they get a fresh start somewhere else, you're able to unlock some of the, the talent. So that's why Hoaglander's a guy that, that I've heard whispered about a little bit. There's a number of guys around the league who I think they'd like to explore. The question is would a team like Vancouver even do that. And maybe you guys could speak to that better than I can, but I do think, they're fishing around right now to see what kind of value they can salvage for a guy who just hasn't worked out in New York.
0: Uh, I will add this, Vince. The agent that represents Vitelli Kravsov is none other than Dan Milstein, who I think actually has a chair. Uh, in the executive suite at Rogers Arena now because he's done so many deals <laughs> with this current – you know, you got Ilya uh, and then uh. Andrei Kuzmenko. So we're just connecting dots here at the Halford and Bruff Show on Sportsnet 650. Vince, before we let you go, uh, I want to talk about this piece that you wrote Terrific, really. Uh, I did not realize that it's the fight. We just passed the five year anniversary of what's known in New York as the letter capital T and capital L on the letter. And this was the one, of course, that the former GM Jeff Gorton wrote to ticket holders and the fans, essentially waving a white flag on the season, but more importantly, uh, on an era in New York Rangers hockey where they moved on from. Stahl, McDonough, Lundquist, I could go on and on and on of the guys that got moved out, and they did it. I remember at the time, they did it with the team still on the fringes of a playoff chase, but they made a very, very hard and fast move to rebuild right then and there. And now, five years later, you look at this team that is among the best in the Eastern Conference. Now, uh, with, you know, I want people to read this article so you don't have to give away all of it, but you said there were some new revealing details sort of juicy revelations. What were some of the things that you learned about the letter, the rebuild, and then where we are five years later?
3: Well, it was fascinating because I got in contact with a lot of people, whether it's people from around the league or people who are involved directly with the Rangers rebuild to write that story. And it is pretty remarkable when you think about it, because you hear teams talk about rebuilding all the time, but at the time they sent out that letter, it was very unique, especially in the NHL for a team to announce to its fan base, Hey, we're going to sell off some of your favorite players to collect assets for the future and basically go through a period of losing with an eye toward the future. And the fan base received it incredibly well. I mean, people in the organization, they they thought it was a good PR move at the time, but they didn't expect the fan base to buy in quite at the level that they did. And now you've seen the remarkable turnaround that they have. And, And what I dissect in the story, some of those juicy details you're talking about are you know, what was going on in the draft room at the time when the Rangers were making some of these picks that they were sort of hinging their future on? We go into the Vitali kratsoff pick and what's gone wrong with him since then. We go into the year before that. If you guys remember, the Rangers took Leah Anderson at number seven overall. But my understanding from talking to people was they were trying like heck to trade up. They had two guys in mind. One is Kale McCarr, who's, who's turned out pretty well. And the other guy is Pedersen, uh, who everyone in Vancouver knows pretty well. The Rangers really want to trade up to get one of those guys. They weren't able to make it happen. And so they end up taking Leith Anderson, who kind of turned out to be a bust for them and, and didn't work out. So little, little ju- juicy details like that. Some of the trades that they made at the time when you connect the dots now. You know, they made this big trade with Tampa Bay Lightning, where they send uh, J.T. Miller and Ryan McDonough to the Lightning. And you look at the return that they got back there – nothing really panned out for them from that trade. But on the other end of the spectrum, they trade Rick Nash to the Boston Bruins. And from that trade, they essentially get Ryan Lindgren, who's been a steady top pair defenseman for them for a while. Keandre Miller, who looks like an emerging star and Ryan Strom, who was their second line center for three years. So that trade was a huge win for them. So It gets into a lot of the the behind-the-scenes conversations that were going on around that time and some of the moves that were made for the Rangers that really accelerated this rebuild. And, of course, it didn't hurt that they got the number 2 overall pick one year. They got the number 1 overall pick one year. And Artemi Panarin made it clear he wanted to come to New York. And that's what really accelerated the rebuild for them. So they got lucky in a few spots. But the rebuild was also the strategy that they enacted there of collecting as many assets that, that they could and hoping that some of them would hit. It worked out incredibly well for them, and I think you it was a little bit of a blueprint that some teams around the league have tried to follow since then.
1: Again, I want people to to read this piece as well, but I I do want to ask about James Dolan and how involved he was in the decision for the Rangers to do this rebuild, because he doesn't always strike me as the most patient guy.
3: Yeah, that's a fair characterization. Here's what I would tell you, and I, I get into this meeting, in the story. This is a really fascinating meeting that I learned about while reporting on this. So the writing was on the wall that the, the core of the Rangers was aging and Gorton was slowly making moves that were uh, with eyes toward the future. One of them was he traded Derek Brassard to the Ottawa Senators, got Mika Zibanejad. That's one of the best trades Gorton ever made. He also sent Derek Stepan to the Arizona Coyotes where he got the number seven overall pick and Tony D'Angelo. So he was making these moves that were sort of hinting at, okay, I think we need to restock our young talent pool right now. But then during that 2017, 2018 season, the owner after the Rangers had lost three games in a row in early February, and were kind of falling behind in the playoff race, called a meeting with all the top executives from the Rangers and basically asked them a simple question. Is the team as currently constructed good enough to win a Stanley cup? Now, Elaine Vigneault, the coach at the time, my understanding was he fought for, yes, if we get into the playoffs, anything can happen. But pretty much everybody else in the room was like, "Uh, you know, I don't think we're there right now. And when that determination was made, they got the blessing from the owner to move ahead, fully tear it down, and go into a rebuild mode. And that's what really set the wheels in motion for the letter and for everything that came after that.
0: Vince, this was great, man. Thanks a lot for taking the time to do this this morning. We really appreciate it. Uh, Enjoy the game tonight and the rest of the season. Let's get caught up closer to the start of the playoffs because obviously the Rangers will be a major player in that. Yeah, cool. Thanks for having me, guys. Yeah, thanks for coming on. We appreciate it. That's New York Rangers reporter Vince Mercogliano here on the Halford and Bruff Show on Sportsnet 650. Uh, I do encourage you to read that article. It's pretty cool. Uh, I do remember, again, not to harken back to the NBC days all the time, but I do remember when that happened. Yeah. It wasn't necessarily unprecedented, but it was a... I, I just remember Mark Stahl being, like, vocally pissed off because he's like, we're like two points out of a playoff spot. Yeah. We're in a playoff chase. And then they just went about gutting and slashing. And they made decisions and on And that game. was a
1: group that had achieved quite a bit together. A ton. Right? Were,
0: we, I mean, the year prior, we were at the Stanley Cup Finals when they went... Or two years prior when they, they lost to um, the, Kings. the Los Angeles Kings. Like, it was a group mm-hmm. that they just dismantled, but quickly, because they traded away JT Miller and traded away Ryan McDonough, guys that could have given a lot more to the organization because they weren't that old. Mm-hmm. Uh, they had to part ways with fan favorites. Like pe- People loved Matt Zuccarello, but they moved him along. People loved Mark Stahl. They moved him along. And then Lundquist was the toughest one, yeah. right? Because he was the king of New York. But they did it. And that was part of the reason why they were able to Turn things around really quickly. Now, another important thing to note about the Rangers' rebuild, because people are always saying, ah, they got lucky. They a 1,000% did. They had a blueprint. There was no telling it was going to work out. If you go back and look at the drafting that they did with all those picks,
1: they whiffed a lot. But they had the leeway to do it because they had a lot of picks. Exactly. It wasn't a massive deal if one of them didn't pan out. So, for example,
0: the year that they drafted Krabsov, who's kind of a bust – Oh, yeah, absolutely. They had other first round picks and one of them was Kay Andre Miller, who's mm-hmm. turned into a stud on defense. The year they drafted Leas Anderson, they totally missed on that. And that was at seven overall But with the 21st overall pick, another first round pick they had. They got Philippe Hedel, who's turned into a pretty good goal scorer for them. So the yeah, they a lot of things broke their way. But I think they almost went in with the understanding that if we put ourselves in a position where we have to hit on every single pick because we don't have a lot of them. It's going to be real hard. You're never going to do that because mm-hmm. no, there's not a scout in the world, despite what all the nerd scouts will tell you, <laughs> that knock it 100% of the time. It's just impossible. You just need more chips at the table or whatever analogy you want to use to try and get it done. Anyway, you get to see the Rangers tonight, 7 o'clock at Rogers Arena. You're talking about the, the past history of the Rangers, that group that they had. It, I sure am, Greg. More
3: successful than I remember them being. Three out of four years, they went to at least the conference final,
0: and one in the years, they went to the Stanley Cup final. Yeah, so great. they were great teams. Yeah, mm-hmm. that, that's way more success than I remember yeah. them having. Yeah, Rick. Year. I mean, like, uh, I forgot. Rick Nash went there and had a, a really solid... <laughs> Yeah. yeah, yeah. Just you forget about it, and they there would have been a, two Stanley Cups if the Devils didn't go on that that weird run where they knocked him yeah. off in the conference. No, they were really party. good for a really long
1: time. I'm just I'm actually laughing at the memory of Torts just playing the wheels off of Dan Girardi and yep. Ryan McDonough. Oh, like yeah. Dan Girardi was just like, I'm so tired. He loved. Well, they Dan they made
0: a coaching switch to Vino <laughs> and then went back
3: to the conference yeah. final and Stanley Cup
0: final. Mm-hmm. It's wow. well, they, they had a, they had a third line which was like Benoit Pouliot, Matt Zuccarello. And I forget who the other guy was, and it was like such an effective third line. You know, they a lot were of,
1: so good. A lot of people push back on the Rangers rebuild and say, "Well, only New York could do that because guys like Adam Fox wanted to go to New York and Jacob too. Truba Fox. wanted to go to New York." Here's the thing: that's why it's so important to build an organization that players want to play for. It's true. So it has great facilities. And believe it or not, we have quite an advantage in Vancouver. It's a nice city. People want to, I don't, don't, have you seen real estate prices here? Like that suggests there's demand to live in a city like Vancouver, build a great organization, have great facilities, invest in that. And then you will get the players that want to come to your city. They won't have to be convinced to come to your team. And how do you convince players that don't want to come somewhere? You overpay them. Mm Mm-hmm right so there are lessons to be had that might not be exactly the same like you can't Vancouver's never going to be New York City right it just it just isn't New York has that advantage people want to go play at Madison Square Garden but there are things that you can do to make your organization more attractive to not just any players but actual good players uh we'll go to break
0: on some sad news from the National Hockey League and the Washington Capitals uh, we mentioned yesterday that Alex Ovechkin had taken a personal leave from the team. Alex Ovechkin on Instagram this morning announced that his father, Mikhail Ovechkin, uh, has passed away. Uh, Ovechkin left the team a couple of days ago. Uh, he will miss this weekend's stadium series game. And now we know why uh, Mikhail Ovechkin, Alexander Ovechkin's father, passed away. That is why he's taken a leave of absence from the Washington Capitals. Final hour of the Halford and Bruff Show coming up. Dan Murphy's going to join us next here on Sportsnet 650.